0: We are in a series called The Future of the Family. Would you turn to the person next to you and say, future family? Turn to the person on the other side and say, future family. Guy came home and was complaining to his wife. He says, for the second week in a row, my son and I were the only ones who showed up for his soccer, soccer practice. Frustrated, I finally told him, look, would you please tell your coach uh, that we keep coming for practice, but no one else is here? And then uh, he said, my son rolled his eyes and said, yeah, he'll just keep telling me the same thing he keeps telling me. And the dad says, which is what? That practice is now on Wednesdays, not on Tuesdays, dad. You're not listening. Come on, somebody. That feels like the McCain family right there. Anybody know what I'm talking about? I'm like, dude, we can't get the schedules together. We started into this series from the premise that, um, that what will our families look like 10 years from now? What's the future of a Christian family? What's the future of a family? What will that look like? Things are changing. There are things happening. What is, what is the family going to look like? And what is marriage going to look like? And do we hold to the traditional values spoken in the word? And how do we hold to those things? And what can we do about that? And so if you weren't here last week, you, you, it would behoove you to go online and watch the, uh, the, the message from last week. But I'll just review for a second so you're caught up with us. First off, we talked about seeing the future. Like being able to see what's coming. And uh, we quoted that passage out of First Chronicles chapter twelve, verse thirty-two. It says, "The men of Issachar—they were the ones who understood the times and knew what Israel should do. The times are—they are a changing, like the one fellow said." And you, we need to know what to do. We need to be like the men of Issachar, the tribe of Issachar, that, that grouping, that family of Issachar that knew what Israel should do, what was the right way, what's the wrong way. And we need to have insight. We need to be able to see into the future as to what God's trying to do and how he's trying to keep us and protect us. And so with that being said, we studied the family of David, King David, who wrote you know, most of the book of Psalms, who is considered a man after God's own heart. He is David, the great man of God. And we studied his family his greatly dysfunctional family. And it was so fun to watch you guys learn about David's dysfunctional family because I could see you literally going, oh, we're not that bad. I mean, come on now, we all right. If the man of God was so messed up, baby, we all right. I'm telling you, we okay. And, and if you weren't here last week, we studied how David, this great man of God, I mean, his one son, his eldest son raped his sister and then, and, then his, and then the other brother killed the son for doing that, the oldest son, and then tried to kill David at the end of it all. Just crazy. And so I just want you to know, you may not have it too good, but you ain't got it too bad. Either. Come on, when you look at this guy. And so what we did was we studied where David really didn't have insight and where he missed it and what we can do differently if we're going to see forward into the future. And I gave you a couple points. If we're going to save the future of our family, number one, we need to commit to learn and to live the right way. It doesn't matter if, if, if it's not culturally uh, what everybody else is doing. What, is, what does God say? What does his Bible say? That's the right way. It says the men of Iskar knew the way that we, they should go. They knew the right way, and they acted therein. You and I need to learn it. I, 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 we may not have it all together, but we need to learn it and figure it out. And then number two, that we need to identify personal weaknesses and deal with them. David never would deal with his personal weakness. He was, he was a great king. He was an amazing man of God, but he was a terrible dad. He just didn't know how to interact with his kids properly. And as a result, just about died and was assassinated because of it. And then the third thing we taught last week is that you need to have courage to make course Corrections. It takes courage to make course corrections. You can be going right and get just one or two degrees off, but by the end of that thing, it becomes so wide. You never intended for you not to be talking to your kids, to have grandkids that you've never met. You never intended that you know that you and we get a divorce, but these little things that you didn't make a course correction to come back to plumb, and so that's what we were talking about. How David did make the course corrections, and it almost killed him. And you and I can make those course corrections. I I, I told you guys I was really struggling because our family is so busy. I've um, got I've got a, I've got a, a college College student who's about to finish up school. Who's one of our ministers here on staff. My son, and then my daughter is uh, finishing up high school, and so she's got all kinds of friends and ministry that she does. And then I've got an eleven-year-old. And I looked up, and we hadn't had dinner together in forever. And I asked them, "Could we start sitting down to have dinner together?" Just because I didn't want to lose it. I saw it was a course correction we needed to make. And they were so gracious that absolutely, Dad adjusted their schedules to do that. And so that's what we studied last week. This week, what I want to dive into the future of the family series. This part is going to actually we're going to talk about the enemies of the family. Turn to the person next to you and say, watch out for those enemies. Tell them the enemies of the family. In Genesis chapter 2, we see that from the very beginning, it was God who instituted marriage and family. Look what it says in chapter 2, of verse 18 of the very first book of the Bible, the second chapter of the Bible. The Lord said, it's not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. So everything that God created, if you'll go down through the, uh, chapter 1, and you'll see all the things that God created. On the first day, he did this. On the second day, and every time, he stopped at the end of the day, and he looked at it and said, it's good. This is good. It's good. It's, it's so good. And he went back, boom, 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 from each and every one. But when he got to man, he looked at man and said, it's not good. It's not, I made him alone. I didn't make him a helpmate. I need to make him a helpmate. And I just want to point out that he then takes a portion of Adam— now, the English translation is a rib, and we always talk about a rib, uh, but there's a little bit more in the original Aramaic that, uh, that it, it actually means, an, it, the word picture of that word in the original uh, language was that half of Adam came out. He, pu- he pulled out of who he was, and obviously he did something physically where he cut out a rib or whatever it may be, but the, in, the intention was that God took out of Adam part of who he was and created Eve from that place. And look at the scripture that we just read, says, I'll make a helper suitable for him." him. Fellas, I just want to point out, you don't get anybody to help you who's weaker than you. So this whole misappropriation from back in the day, well, bless, uh, she's the weaker vessel, and I tell my woman what to do, my old lady does what I'm saying. So, you're an idiot. Let me just point this out. And the reason why I say that is because God made someone stronger than you to help you. He said, my wife's not stronger than me. Let's, let's have you give birth just once. Y'all seen those YouTube videos where these guys have hooked the machines up to have contractions? Yes, sir. I thought about doing that one Sunday, but none of the men would volunteer for that. And and I've already submitted to the fact she's stronger than me. I ain't even going to worry about it. And so what we see here is that God himself instituted marriage. He looked and said, I need this guy not to be alone. He's imperfect being alone. So he started marriage. Uh, Culture didn't start marriage. Humanity didn't start marriage. And notice that God didn't create him five wives. Just want to point that out. Seriously, notice, notice, notice that, that God didn't make him the domineering factor. In fact, just the opposite. He created someone who could help him, who was suited for him, that would fit him. It was God's plan and design. When Jesus is discussing it in Matthew chapter 19, verse 4, he says it like this. That at the beginning of creation, the beginning, the creator, excuse me, made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh so that they are no longer two, but one. It was God's original design from the very beginning that a family unit would start with a male and a female that would leave their family and they would become their own family unit. They would become their own family unit. They would continue to propagate, have children, and, they, and, and that would continue on creating more family units. In fact, when you study the scriptures, if you don't understand this one little simple fact, and that is God looked over earth, and most of the people of the earth didn't, ha- didn't believe in him, didn't love in him. But there was one man named Abraham. That's why we call him Father Abraham, Abraham had many sons. Abraham had faith that the living God was still there and that he had a relationship with him. And so from there, God said, I'll make a covenant with you that every child child that you have, every one of the families that come out of your womb, if you will, uh, from from your wife's womb, they will be my people. We'll call them Israel. We'll call them the Jews. And so every Jewish person that's full-blooded Jew, they came from Abraham and from Sarah. That's where they came from. And God made a covenant. These will be my people. No matter what all the other tribes of the earth are doing, you will be my people. And what I'll do is I'll let everyone else to see how good of a relationship you, you have with the living God and how wonderful this is, and they'll be attracted back to me. And that was his intent and very plain. So when we study scriptures, we see God literally talking about the families of the Jews, the tribes. He has this concept that the base model of what real life is, is family. It's a family unit. And so from the very beginning, we see that Satan began to attack this family unit. From the very beginning. And we see literally that it was so important to God that we have kids that he told us that we literally, that the children are a blessing. We see Psalms talking about they're a blessing, they're a heritage from the Lord. And so there's this family unit thing that God himself created, and we there walk there in. But from the very beginning, we find Satan trying to destroy it. We see him in the garden with Adam and Eve. They finally, I mean, what are they, in their first year of marriage, whatever it is, and Satan comes in the form of a serpent, and he, and he lies to him and says, <laughs> God didn't really say that, did he? Manipulates, tricks them, if you will. They bought into it. And the moment they bought into rebelling against God, I know what God said, but Satan tells him, he's just telling you that because he knows that if you eat of this fruit, you'll be like him. You'll be a God yourself. So they eat of it. They eat of it. And when that moment happens, what it actually does is start the death process. It rips open, if you will, the the natural realm. And now all of a sudden, death and destruction comes in. Prior to that, you got to think about this. Sorry for my old countryside, but they walked around naked all day long. Naked in the woods. Even if I did want to walk around naked, I wouldn't do it in the woods. Are you with me? Come on, somebody. So how can they walk around naked in the woods? First of all, there's no shame. There's no guilt. There's none of that. But just the practical side, there's no thorns. There's no, you know, there's no little critters. Come on, the the red bugs, where I'm from, shoot. All these pieces are not there. Why? Because it was paradise. Because God made it perfect. What happened is when they sinned, what happened was then in that sin, destruction came into the earth. That's why there are babies that are born with brain tumors. God didn't do that until sin entered into the earth. Way back thousands of years ago, destruction came into the earth and into our lives because of the rebellion back in the garden. God made it originally perfect and beautiful so much so they could walk around naked, not get scratched, not get hurt. The fruit grows off the trees, all these kind of things. They didn't have to toil for their food. It just kind of happened. And they would have lived forever. But what happened was when sin came in, it destroyed when they when they rebelled against him, it destroyed humanity and then a shelf life that we began to die at certain ages, some of us sooner than others. It was disease, sickness, all these things were introduced into humanity that were not there before. Because God originally had this perfect plan, had the perfect plan about a husband and a wife, about beautiful children. But you and I all know how Satan has been trying to destroy the family from the very beginning. So after he got them tricked in that part, then he comes back around and literally Cain and Abel, the first two, if you will, children on the planet, Cain begins to hate his brother Abel. Because of a sacrifice that went before the Lord that God was like, Cain, that's not a good enough sacrifice. Abel did better than you. This is not a good sacrifice. And the Bible says that Cain literally got bitterness and hatred in his heart towards his brother. And God comes to him and says, what are you doing? If you do what's right, you'll be accepted. Why why, why are you worried about Cain? If you just do what's right, you'll be accepted. But be careful because sin is crouching at the door like a lion about to jump on you. And Cain goes out and he kills his brother Abel, the first murder in the very beginning of humanity. Because from the very beginning, the enemy's been trying to destroy the family. That's been his plan. That's been his overall goal from over and over and over in the years. And each and every one of us have experienced some of that. Each and every one of us have found uh, there, there are people in this room who have been molested by someone who should have protected them. There are people in this room, people in, in, in Christ who love God, who grew up in a, in a battered situation. Uh, there are those of us that have gone through divorce, those of us have all these diff- difficulties, because from the very beginning, the enemy's been trying to destroy the, the proper plan that God has, and we've been doing our best to band-aid it back up. And I'll even show you some statistics. Look at these couple of statistics that I found. One in three divorces here in the United States start as online affairs. From the very beginning, just he started destroying the, in, uh, the family, and now he's just continuing on. One in three we're starting with online affairs. After, uh, there are nine divorces and the time it takes for a couple to recite their wedding vows. Every two minutes in the, United, in the United States, nine people get divorced. Now, the divorce rate has gone down over the last few years, but that's because the marriage rate has gone down. And still, we're looking at about a 50% divorce rate in the, those who call themselves Christians and those who call themselves non-Christians. And so from the very beginning, he destroyed and wanted to kill families off. And now he's still doing, that's been his plan and his trick from the very beginning. That's why we're doing this series. Because I want you to have strong marriages. I want you to have strong families. God wants you to have strong families. God has a plan to restore and to fix everything that Satan's breaking. He has a plan to help you defend against all the plans to destroy. And you and I can do it. And we can overcome. In fact, here's a little stat that I thought was cool. Children who eat dinner with their parents five or more days a week have less trouble with drugs, alcohol. They eat healthier. They show better academic performance and report being closer to their parents than children who do not eat with their parents or who eat with their parents less often than that. How about this statistic? I'll put it on the screen. I'll show you a little, a kind of thing, how, how the enemy has been trying to destroy the family unit from the very beginning. Look at this chart up here. Put the, so, so in 1960, look at the yellow at the top and the big large bar over to the left. In 1960s, of children in the United States lived in a family unit that was their original mom, their original dad, being married together, and 70% of kids in America in the 1960s grew up in that kind of family unit. If you continue down the bar by 1980, that had dropped to 61%, and then by 2014, that's dropped to 46%. So more than half of the, uh, excuse me, just under half of the the children in the United States live in a family unit that's not their, it could be a single mama, it could be a single dad, it could be, uh, you know, a, a divorce, remarriage type blended family kind of thing. But that, look at that drop. So we see an attack on the traditional plan that God had for for uh, for marriage. And then you'll look down at the dark, the dark green here on this stat, and and 1960, only about nine percent were single-parent homes in 1960s. That increased, almost doubled in 1980, by 1980, to 19% of single-parent homes. And then at the, by, by 2014, and again, I know this is five years old, but by two, 2014, we're at 26%, so 25% of children are growing up in single-parent homes. And then, of course, you see the other stats about cohabitating and and, and and reblended families and things like that. But what you find is in the statistical analysis about how difficult it is for a child and for uh, children to grow up in single-parent homes and, and the things, the obstacles that they have to overcome. And I just want you to know, in fact, if you're a single parent in this room, I want you to know your church is for you. God will fix what the enemy has broken. You're not alone in this. In fact, if you're a single mom, single dad, would you just stand up with me? I'm sorry to point you out. I just feel like the Lord really wants me to put some attention to you for a second. Would you stand up? Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Keep standing. Keep standing. Keep standing. Keep standing. Those of you close to them, grab their hand. Anybody close to them, grab their hand. I want to pray for you right now. Father, in the name of Jesus, I pray for our single moms and single dads. God, I pray right now in Jesus' name they would feel the strength of the Lord their God upon their life. Thank you that they're coming to church. They're doing their best to get their kids in a Christian environment, Lord God, to get support. Father, I pray they find good small groups where there's some men in there, there's some ladies in there that can help them with their families, Lord God. Father, I thank you. Your word says that you are a father to the fatherless, in Jesus' name, that their kids will be great, they'll be strong, they'll do better than anyone else in their school academically, socially. Father, I thank you that you're giving mom supernatural abilities beyond her ability. Lord, and in the times where mom or dad who's a single parent is laying at home in bed by themselves after a crazy week that, Lord God, and they feel like, I don't want to do this anymore, I can't do this anymore, that they would feel your breath upon them. And they would feel the rest of God. And, Lord God, that they would be able, Lord God, to see breakthrough in the areas that they're concerned about. Father, I bless them now in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. We love you. We're here for you the best we can. Let us know how we can help. So my mom was a single mom, you know, some of you know my story, uh, she had me at a young age, me, me, and then uh, and I grew up with her as a single mom for a number of years, and uh, in my developmental stages uh, in my childhood, so I know what it is to want to try out for baseball and not know how to throw a baseball, not have a dad to teach me to show me how to do it. I know what it is to have someone at her work go buy me a baseball glove, because she doesn't even know what kind of baseball glove uh, to buy me. I, I know those feelings and those emotions and that sense of rejection, but I also know what it is, come on somebody, for. God to bring a pop into our life. Come on now. And us to get saved. And for Pop to be my dad, man, to have a dad in my life as I'm, you know, turning into my teenage year. So God will fix what Satan breaks. Amen? God will push back the enemy's plan and help you. So you don't you may be a blended family. You may, bro, you may be sitting here and you've messed up, you know, your last set of you know family and your children and all that. God will restore it, He will fix it, and He will push back the plan of the enemy, and He will bring you to a place that He intended, and He will clean up what's and has destroyed. Are you with me? Say yes. So with that being said, let me kind of just take you into, if I could, some of the, what I see as the top three enemies of the family. I think if we can identify those and we can work together as, uh, listen, if you're single, you need to know the enemy. I'm telling you, you need to know what enemy is going to try to destroy you before you even get married. If you're you're a young married couple and you don't have kids yet, you need to know what's coming and what's upon you. Those of us that are married with kids and even some of you with grandkids, you need to know what the enemy, uh, his tactics are. And so I've identified today kind of what I think are the top three enemies. So let's start with number one that you and I need to identify, and that is the enemy, anything, anything that steals affection. That's an enemy, anything that steals affection. Anything that steals the love that you have for Jesus and the love you have for your spouse, the love you have for your kids, the love you have for your mom and dad, if you're a young person, whatever it may be, anything that steals that love, that's an enemy. And you need to stomp it out. You need to drive it out. You need to push it out. Look what 1 Corinthians 13 says in verse 4. It says, Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It's not proud. It's not rude. It's not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. It keeps no records of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices in the truth. It always protects. It always trusts. It always hopes. It always perseveres. And look at verse 8. Love never fails. Would you say it with me? Love never fails. One more time. Love never fails. It doesn't fail. It doesn't fail. So that's why the enemy is constantly trying to steal your affection away, trying to steal your affection and your love away from Jesus, trying to steal your affection and love away from your spouse, trying to steal your affection and love for your children, for your mom and dad. Oh, they don't know. They're an idiot anyway. They don't care about me. Constantly trying to steal your affection. And you and I have to be on guard against that, and we have to fight to maintain and can bring it back to a place of real affection and real love for our family and for one another. And one of the ways that the enemy really does this is by perverting what love is and what affection is. So we live in the most sexual, in my opinion, of all the years I've been alive, and as I do research uh, on the history of the world, I believe outside of you know, some of what some of these pagan, complete pagan societies have done, we live in one of the most sexually deviant times in the history of the world, in my opinion. I mean, for the, for the average age to see pornography for the first time now is, is nine years old. And, um, and so I thought today that, you know, I've, I've been telling you guys that in this series, I wasn't going to just draw from my own experience or my own understanding of the Word, but out of some experts. And so I've incorporated some teachings from Dr. James Dobson, who is a, a master uh, teacher in helping families and, and, and marriages, and, uh, you know, in his 80s now, a child psychologist. And he has a little statement on what he went through, and I think it would behoove you and I to hear about what pornography and the, and the power it is to steal away real affection. So would you play that for him for just
1: a second? In 1985 and 6, I served on the U.S. Attorney General's Commission on Pornography, which turned out to be one of the most difficult assignments of my life. For 18 months, I had the unenviable responsibility with 10 other commissioners of examining the most wretched material ever published. Many people think obscenity consists of airbrushed nudity as seen in popular men's magazines, when in reality, much of it involves unthinkable violence against women, depictions of the abuse and even the killing of children, and other subjects that I can't describe in this setting. I regret to say now that everything I witnessed during that 18 months is now available on the Internet and can be accessed by any 12-year-old with a computer and a modem. They can pull down material that's clearly illegal and print it on high-resolution copiers that equal anything found in adult bookstores. And I want to tell you as a child psychologist that this material is terribly destructive, especially to boys in the early adolescent years. It teaches them to associate sex with violence, and it sets them up for a lifelong addiction. And yet our United States Supreme Court ruled recently that the law designed to protect children from this curse was unconstitutional. All I can do in response is plead with parents to monitor what your kids are being exposed to on that innocent-looking PC.
0: So when it comes to affection and love, what has happened to our generation is we're confused about what love is. In fact, all love is now turned to sexual love. But there's an affection that two men can have with each other in camaraderie and love each other without it turning sexual. There's an affection that should happen between a, a dad and his daughter without it being sexual. And and there's an affection that should happen uh, between two gals who just love God and love each other and, and, and it doesn't have to turn sexual. But everything that has been propagated to our generation is that any kind of real affection is going to turn sexual. It has to be. And we've identified love as just one aspect. And there is a sexual side of love. There is a love that's sexual, but there's also a love that's camaraderie. There's also a love that is just friendship. Come on, you with me? There's also a a type of love that is just, you know, uh, 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 good and fun, and it doesn't have to turn to sexual. But because we've been overwhelmed with pornography, and I make the, I, I would make the case that when it comes to things like, I don't know, movies, we rate them You can't, you know, PG-13. You shouldn't go see those movies if you're under, if you're uh, under 13. Uh, 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 Rated R. They're restricted unless you're 18. I mean, we do all these restrictions for families and for children just because we recognize their developmental uh, uh, inabilities and things like that. We don't let them have a driver's license before they're 16. We don't, we don't let, uh, we don't, we're not allowed to, you know, uh, vote until we're, you know, certain. uh, You know, uh, we're not allowed to go to war. All these pieces that we've identified. But why haven't we done that with the internet? Why have we done that with internet porn? I'll tell you why. It's because leaders can't stand against what they participate in. Yep. And so what we've got is an entirely broken system. And the reason why it's broken is because there's a force of evil pushing it to destroy your marriage, to destroy, to destroy your family. Because for, for a family and a marriage really to be strong, it's got to have love. It's got to have affection. Not sex. Affection. Know that 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 when dad hugs you he it, it brings you such confidence it brings you such security to to know that that uh, that, that your husband is committed to you and only you these are the pieces that the enemy has been trying to destroy. To destroy And anything, friend, anything that destroys or hinders or hurts affection in your family, you need to treat it like a cancer. You need to treat it like it is an enemy trying to destroy your marriage and try to destroy your family. You and I could do so much more in a place where love and affection is abounding. And the reason why many of you love my, my pop is because he's the most loving, affectionate person in the world. And the reason why I make you go hug people and say hello to people it's because i want to i want you to i want you to experience not only receiving but also giving proper affection that's not sexual and so doing that in the in the house of god doing that and i know some of you're just like i don't want to get up i don't want to go talk to anybody this is so uncomfortable for me exactly you're broken i'm trying to fix you okay and so that's why i'm trying to get you to go love on people and people love on you because we all need it we were created we were created to experience affection we were created to have someone hug us and touch us. We need physical touch. God created us to have that and need that. And, and so when you don't have it in a proper way, it all turns sexual and per- turns perverted. And so what's happened is the enemy has brought that into our family units, into our marriages, and anything that steals away the affection in your family, you need to treat it like a cancer and you need to root it out. Are you with me? Say yes. Here's a second thing that I would teach you, and that is, any. here's another enemy, and that is anything that steals confidence, anything that steals confidence, hurtful words, anything that steals confidence in your marriage, in your family unit, with your children, children, with your, with your parents, anything that steals away confidence. Early on, you know, Jamie and I are only children. We don't have brothers and sisters that, you know, we have stepbrothers and sisters, but we don't have any brothers and sisters that live in the home. So from the very beginning, I could not understand you guys that have siblings. You would get knocked down, drag out fights with your sibling. And the next day be best friends. Could, didn't make any sense to me. Didn't make any sense. Or, and, or if your brother, who's an idiot, messed with me and I beat him down, now I gotta fight everybody. But we all know he's an idiot. It's my brother, leave him. He's my brother. He's an idiot. He deserves to be beat down. You were just beaten on him five minutes ago. Like, I, did, I never could get it. And, and the reason why is because I was an only child. I didn't really understand that. But there's this confidence that is built in a family unit. There is, you know what, my brother's got my back. I got my brother's back. We may kill each other, but we got each other's back. Yeah. We may, we may fight and spit and cuss and whatever, but at the end of the day, we got each other. And the enemy's been trying to destroy that from the very beginning. That's why some of you haven't talked to a brother, hadn't talked to a family member in forever. Why? Because the enemy's been trying to put discord, trying to bring that. Why? Because you have confidence whenever you got a... Uh, you know, when I was doing a lot of inner city ministry, we found these kids would, would, you know, didn't have family units, so they would go join gangs. And the reason why they joined gangs is not because of, you know, the tattoo. It was because they needed to belong to something. They wanted the confidence that somebody... I'm a part of something, and somebody's got my back, and I got theirs. And they wouldn't rat each other out. They'd go to prison over each other. I mean, they would shoot for each other, kill for each other. And the reason that was is because they needed a life confidence. We all need confidence. That Listen, if mama don't love you, who can love you? If daddy don't care about you, the the insecurity that is the result of broken family units because confidence has been stolen that, listen, no matter what I do, mama's going to love me. No matter what I do, I got a brother and a sister who's always there for me. And that's why the enemy's been trying to steal that and destroy. No matter what I got, my wife will be there for me. No matter who else rejects me, my wife will be there. And that's why the enemy has been trying to steal that confidence. And listen, in our family, because we were only children, I didn't really understand the sibling rivalry thing and the little conflict that you guys have with your brothers and sisters. So as we started having kids, I started, you know, they would, they would get to picking on each other. You're so stupid and that kind of stuff. I'll never forget the first time I heard that, I was like, no. I don't know a lot, but that ain't right. I don't know how to parent real well, but I can tell you that it's not going to happen. And I pulled mine in, and i tell you, I will beat, I mean, I will bless each and every one of you. We don't talk bad about each other. And I told him, I said, listen, there's enough, uh, there's enough people out there trying to destroy the McCain's. We're not going to destroy ourselves. So you're not allowed to speak negative. You're not to make fun of your sister. Yeah. I, I was like, you're not going to make fun of your sister because she's asking dumb questions. You're not going to tell your brother that. You're not going to treat him like that. That's not, you're not going to say those words that are going to be hurtful and cutful. They've never heard me demean their mama. And the reason why is because I learned that those words steal confidence. Sweetheart, he may be a bum, but every day that you tell him he's a bum, it not causing him to be not a bum because lo- he's losing confidence. And what he needs is a wife or a person in his life who says, you can do this. It's okay. You may not be the perfect Christian, but you're going to church with him. I'm proud of you. Bro, he needs a man who says, you know what? It's all right. You had three kids. they my babies. That scar across your belly is because of me. Thank you. You're beautiful to me. I love you. We need someone beside us building confidence. You don't need to, every time your kid comes home, ask him, did you get a B or a C? Which one did you get? What if you just say, hey, you didn't murder anybody today? Good job, buddy. I love you. I'm so proud of you. Build some confidence in anything that's stealing confidence in your marriage. Anything that's stealing confidence in with your children, with your mom and dad. Listen, it, it's an enemy. It needs, to be, it needs to be removed. It needs to be thrown out. It needs, to be, it needs to be attacked and removed for the enemy that it is. And one of those areas that not only the words that we speak, but also being overcommitted. That will literally kill confidence. Because daddy don't show up when he says he's going to show up because he's got these five other things going. Because mama can't have a five-minute conversation because she's burning up the phone line the whole time. Because our young person who we're trying to build a relationship with has all these other friends who understand them better. And so there's no confidence between mom and dad and and, and the young person because we've overcommitted ourselves. And Dr. James Dobson speaks to that. I want you to hear his words on that here for just a second.
1: Ignoring the most common threat to family life, we can talk about alcoholism or drug abuse and infidelity. But for many families, the most dangerous threat to marriage is the simple matter of overcommitment. I'm talking about the husband and wife who are too exhausted to take walks together, to understand one another, to meet each other's needs. So often these days, the husband moonlights, the wife works and tries to oversee the home, and everyone is on the brink of exhaustion. Their children get short-changed, and life goes speeding by in a deadly routine. I see this kind of overcommitment as the quickest route to the destruction of the family, and there simply must be a better way. Some friends of mine recently sold their house and moved into a smaller and less expensive place just so they could lower their payments and reduce the hours required in the workplace. That kind of downward mobility is unheard of today, it's almost un-American. But when we reach the end of our lives and we look back on the things that mattered most, those precious relationships with people we love will rank at the top of the list. If friends and family will be a treasure then, why not live like it today?
0: Uh, years ago, I was, um, I was a kind of a traveling minister. I was doing about 82 engagements a year. Um, which there's only 52 weeks in a year. In the summer times, I would be at two, three, sometimes four different conferences in a week and seeing a lot of people come to Christ, seeing a lot of revival, a lot of movement, uh, and a lot of transformation. Uh, my kids were young. <clears throat> Our marriage was strong. The kids loved me. They loved Jesus. Jamie loved me. loved Jesus. There came this moment where I felt, I literally felt that we were, I was just a little off. At The same time God was asking me to do Church on the Hill, Make that a full-time focus. At the same time, I was complaining to him. Church on the Hill didn't have enough tithing people to support me. And uh, and, uh, and it was a faith walk to let go of 75% of my income and to move out of our big house, sell it in Lake Ridge, move into rental property that we had, kicked our renters out and moved into, move into that little rental property and to take the kids out of private school and put them in public school. It was a faith walk, keep driving the same beat old cars that we we had been driving and lay it all down for this one moment of being obedient. Unbeknownst to me, what God was doing was I couldn't even see that though I was just a little bit off, I was our family was still close, just a little bit off, that had we kept going in that direction, I would have ended up probably with kids who did not know me, did not love the Lord, but here I was changed the world all around the nations of the world, preaching in Brazil a couple times, three, four times a year, Colombia, Japan, Germany, all these places. But at the end of the day, to only have lost my children, lost my wife potentially, because the confidence in the relationship couldn't be there because I was never there to build the confidence, the overcommitment, and I'm grateful that God helped me see that in just enough time to make a little change and bring me back to the place and I promise you, I am so proud of God pushing me to do that and I'll get to be your pastor now. I get to have children who love the Lord serving the ministry. My wife loves me and I'm telling you, it was a course correction. Don't be scared to make the course correction. Anything that steals confidence. Words that are being spoken that are hurtful over commitment, whatever steals confidence. You and your spouse and your family need to identify what's stealing our confidence in each other. Why don't we have why don't we really why don't we really have a family unit that like is, is the deal that keeps us strong? Here's a third piece that I would say to you, the enemy that we need to watch out for, and that is any enemy or anything that steals trust. That steals trust. Steals trust anything that you're doing or saying or not doing or saying that steals trust. Any, anything that the enemy's trying to do to steal trust. And so I would say it like this: a couple of things that we've learned to do over the years, and that is build trust. Don't let the enemy steal it, but to build it. And so we're Jamie and I are constantly working on building trust. For example, I um, we have an app on our phone. Every one of my children, my wife, my parents, my in-laws—they know where I'm at at all times. I have a GPS tracking piece on my phone that builds trust. With all the stuff you see on the news these days, with pastors sleeping around with people they're not married to, doing things that they're not supposed to be doing, doing drugs and all that kind of stuff, I wanted my family to have trust, and I wasn't going to let mistrust get in there. I, sat, I wasn't going to be unaccountable. And so my own family know where I'm at all the time. My wife will call me, you're at Chick-fil-A too. I'm like, what? Oh yeah, The app. Bro, can I explain something to you? Yes, maybe it's been 15, 20 years ago since you had, uh, you know, uh, you cheated on her and you can't figure out why she can't get over it. Maybe what you gotta do is start learning how to build trust for her and not let get that enemy of mistrust out of there. Maybe maybe because she still doesn't know where you're going at times. Sweetheart, maybe, maybe he's still acting the way he's acting because you still have codes on Facebook that he doesn't even know how to get past. And you have passwords on your phone that no, one, no one's allowed to know but you. Maybe, maybe, just maybe, it's time to get rid of the multiple. Multiple Facebook accounts that you have—you got the one that everybody knows about for work, and then you got the one. mm -hmm, What stays in Vegas happens in Vegas, and all that stuff. Maybe it's time to say, you know what? I'm really going to serve the Lord, and I'm going to remove that, even though even though it's 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 not that big of a deal. But what it's creating is mistrust. Can I just tell you something, sir? If you tell them you're going to pick them up at that time, you need to pick them up at that time. A man walked up to me after service and said, hey, could you do this for me? And I looked him in the eye. Could you? He said, could you do this for me? I said, no. And he was like, what? Like, I just asked the pastor. I said, if I tell you I'm going to do that right now, I'm not going to remember. Giving me your phone number and asking if someone could call your wife, but I'm not going to remember. What I need you to do is this, because I know what it's like to say yes to something and not follow through on it and break those people's trust. Are you with me? So I'm smart enough now to say, nope. I love you, but I know I ain't gonna do that right. I ain't smart enough, and I'm not, I'm not, I got too much going to commit to that. And what's happened is we've broken trust. And mistrust in a relationship, in a family, is one of the key enemies that continue to propagate pain and suffering and difficulty. And you and I need to come back up and say, you know what? We're gonna, we're gonna find a way to reestablish trust. Some things you gotta let go of, sweetheart, bro, you gotta let go of some things. Hey, let me explain something. As a teenager, you are killing trust in your family because you keep manipulating the situation. You just own it. You did it. And stop saying, well, actually what happened was I was I was, I was uh, Billy was driving and I didn't even know we were gonna go there. Shut up, stop lying and just say, Yeah, I thought we might end up here. I was I was hoping that we wouldn't. And when I was in it, I didn't know what to do. I should have called you, like I said, instead of lying. You don't listen, we might be old, but we ain't stupid, okay? So tell the truth, because every time you manipulate that thing, I'm looking at you like, okay, okay. It happens to me all the time. As a pastor, people start telling me their story, and their wife is sitting there looking at them, and I'm looking at them, and I'm like, I'm looking at them going, look, you've told me half the truth. You told me what sounds good and doesn't make you look bad, but at the end of the day, your mama might believe that, but I don't, all right? Sell that on eBay. Go, go ahead and just be honest. Go ahead and be brutally honest. One of the things that you love about our church is I don't pretend to be something I'm not. I'm just honest. You're like, oh my God, my pastor just said that. I can't believe he said that. Like how how stupid could he be to go buy uh, what he thought was a laptop out of the back of a trunk at Christmas? Like how dumb could he be? You know, I'm just being honest though, right? Why? Because I'm building trust with you. Because if I'm that way in the pulpit, maybe I'm that way in real life. And everyone who knows me says he's the same in the pulpit that he is in real life. It's the same guy. And the reason that is, is because I've watched over years people get broken and hurt by the pastor, by the leaders of the church, because they saw them somewhere outside of the church, and they were different than they were at the church. That's why I'm constantly trying to teach you, just be you. Be real with your mistakes, with your shortcomings, and that builds trust. I was probably a sophomore in school, and mom and dad uh, put me in Christian school, because they're like, that'll fix him. And... uh, that didn't fix, fix anything. And so can you imagine if, if I'm almost 50 now and how much I cut up now, can you imagine me as a sophomore in high school? <laughs> and I'll never forget this one particular time. The teacher was doing something, and, uh, and somebody did something. She had her back turned, and she was writing on the board. Back in those days, they used chalk. And she was writing with this chalk stuff, and, uh, and somebody did something. She turned around. And she said, Adam, go to the office because everybody's laughing. I said, like, I didn't do it. She said, "Go to the office. I don't want to hear it." I'm like, "I didn't do it." And you know that justice sets in. What you can't? I ain't did it. Why are you go to? And so I went to the office. You know, and uh, and and the principal uh, in those days they could give you licks. Some of you grew up Catholic school. They could beat on you suckers. I mean, lock you down. But. But, uh, but Christian school, they can still give you licks. And so I went to the office. They, 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 uh, they, they gave me licks. I came home. I was mad. I was like, I'll never want to go back to their school. They're a bunch of hypocrites. I didn't do it. Da-da-da-da. i am complaining. Da, da 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 And my mom and, and pop sitting there, you know, like she's living in Jesus' name, you know, trying to fix me. And, uh, and finally, mom just said, Adam, I'm going to tell you like this, buddy. You don't lie to us. So I believe you probably didn't do it. But here's the problem. Every other time, you are the one doing it. Isn't that right? Yes, ma'am. And she said, so what's happened is you now have a reputation. So when that teacher's got her back turned and someone does something stupid and acting a fool, she turns around and she's looking for who? For you. Because you have done it over and over and over again. Many times you got away with it. And this time, sowing and reaping came back to bite you on the butt in the form of a paddle. And she said, I said, but I didn't do it. That's not right. She goes, you may think it that way. But the problem is you have a reputation, and that teacher doesn't trust you. In fact, you've got to ima- imagine all those teachers are sitting in the teacher's lounge. Who had Adam today? Yeah, me. Oh, my God. <laughs> and she says, and so what you have to do is reestablish trust because your heart's pure, but you act a fool when you get in front of people, and you've got to change. And I says, Well, what do I need to do? She says, first off, you need, you need to sit at the front of the classroom. I said, I am not sitting at the front of the classroom. That's where all the nerds and the losers sit. I'm not sitting up there. I am not sitting up there. That's where my wife would sit. That's why she's brilliant. <laughs> but I'm not that kid. I am not sitting up there. She goes, That's, she goes, well, and then the other thing you need to do is go sit down with that teacher. And you need to look her in the eye and say, listen, I didn't do that yesterday. But I know that I've done it all the other times. And you've lost confidence in me. And I want to tell you, I'm sorry and I repent to you. But I'm telling you true, truth. I didn't do it yesterday. But, but I'll do whatever you need me to do to, get, to regain your trust. And, she, and I said, oh, I'll tell her that I'll meet with her. I'll tell her for sure I didn't do it. And so I sat down with her, and the teacher said the exact same thing. My mom said, do you, do you mean that? Do you want to rebuild my trust? I said, yes. She said, then you got to sit at the front of the classroom right behind me. <laughs> you got to be kidding me. But I was going to prove her wrong, all right? I'll do it. And it was so hard to act a fool when you're sitting at the front of the classroom. you got to pay attention. Jeez, if I'd have had a cell phone, oh my Jesus, in those days, dear God, I can't imagine being a young person now sitting in school. And so so it changed everything because I made a decision that I was going to rebuild trust. I had lost it being a fool and I was going to have to work my brains out to regain it. And I'll just say this to you. Whatever's happened in your family, you know in your family. You know, teenager, what, why your parents don't trust you. Why you, they're not going to let you get a license. Cert, 50. Why they won't let you date till you're 108. The reason, what have you done? What have, you know. Cert, uh, you know why your wife is scared every time you're up at night on the computer by yourself. What do you got to do to regain trust? That your family needs to determine that you need to sit down and come up with a c- conclusion. But that's an enemy. The three big enemies that I see: number one, is anything, any, any, anything that's stealing a love and affection. Whatever it is, you got to drive it out. You got to get it out of your family. You got to come back to the place whether whether it's overworking or overcommitment, whatever it is. Whether it's wh- whether whatever it is, pornography. Whatever what is stealing true, genuine affection in your family and your marriage? You got to drive it out. You got to get that. You got to get that taken care of. Number two, anything that steals confidence. Why do we not walk in? The the room as the Smith family acting like we own the room. What has happened in our family unit? What's happened in our marriage that we don't have confidence in each other? And then number three, why don't we have trust? What do I got to do to regain trust with my children? What do I have to children? What do you got to redo to get trust from your parents? What do I have to do in our marriage? What do we have to do to keep the enemy from stealing this place of trust? Because you and I, when we have trust with one another, listen, listen, as long, every time my wife trusts me, and I tell you, I feel like I can go bear hunting with a switch. When whenever Jamie's there with me, I like, let's go do it, baby. My wife has such confidence in me, and there have been moments I lost that confidence. I just was in a a black play, a dark place in my life. It was it was it was like a like a black room, like a depression that had come on me, and I could see it in her eyes as she's beginning to lose confidence in me, and it and it broke me to my core. I didn't even really know how to get out of it, and I started falling on my face, and I said, God, you got to help me rebuild confidence in her because I want her to trust me as the man of God I'm supposed to be. And then I've been in that place. as as many of you guys are even some of you now where we just didn't have real affection we just you know i didn't want her to sit next to me i I, you know when she'd say things in my mind i'm like that's so stupid and literally god had to fix it and deliver it he'll do it he did it for us he'll do it for you would you stand with me all across the room the future of the family is right here in the palm of your hands what you decide as a single person now will determine what type of marriage you have down the road What you decide right now is a couple without kids. Right now, how are you going to fight to be sure that there's always affection? How are you going to fight that there's always going to be trust? What you decide here today, the actions that you make today will decide the future of your family. I want you to close your eyes with me for a moment. If you're new to us, I get you to do that, not because we send little elves around to rob your purse at this moment, but we have you do that just so you can concentrate on the Lord. So you can just kind of have a moment with God. So if you'll just close your eyes for a moment, what is is God saying to you through this message what's he pointing out to you what's he saying about how you and I can strengthen our family what enemy has gotten in there do you all lack trust with one another has confidence been destroyed is there any real affection has the enemy tried to steal all that and right there where you stand whatever that may be would you ask the Lord to help you? Listen, you're, you love God and you wouldn't be here today. You want to grow. You want to mature. You wouldn't be sitting here listening to me. If you could do it in your own strength, you wouldn't even need it, Jesus. So it's foolish not to ask him for help. It, it's silly not to think that he doesn't have the power to turn it around for you. You can't do it in your own strength. You can't fix that marriage by yourself. You can't fix that, that family by yourself. Some of you were raised in a real, a real dysfunctional situation. You, you don't have those natural skill sets. I didn't have them. It wasn't natural for me to be affectionate. Father, I pray right now in Jesus' name. For every man and woman in this congregation, those that are watching by live stream, those that are maybe watch this months later, Lord, I pray right now that we would feel your grace come upon us. That you would download thoughts, ahas, little understandings through this message to where we could say, wait a minute, that is the enemy. I didn't even know it. He's stolen our affection. The enemy has stolen our confidence. The enemy has stolen our trust. Lord, I pray right now in Jesus' name, you would bring revelation. On what the enemy has either stolen or tried to steal. And now give these great men and women of valor. Give them insights on what to do. What little adjustment to make. How to respond. How to course correct. Show them, Lord. Show me, Lord. Show us. Lord, I thank you that you instituted marriage. It was your plan for us to have families. And Lord, it's been the enemy's plan to destroy it. And we stand against him. And we say, Lord God, not not our home. As for me and my house, we'll serve the Lord. God, I pray peace and joy. Lord, for blended families, for single moms, single dads, for folks, oh God, that have gone through some real difficult times. And Lord, I pray that they would feel your arms around them, guiding them with messages like this, with relationships and friendships and small group life in this church. They would have the support and the strength that they need. Father, I pray that we would not run away from the solutions, but run to them. Now, if you keep your head bowed and your eye closed for just a moment, maybe you say, Pastor, i got to be honest. I'm not a Christian. In fact, I'm pretty sure if I died today, tragically, I wouldn't go to heaven. Uh, Friend, that that doesn't have to be your destiny. Today's a day of grace and mercy. The Bible says that 2,000 years ago, Jesus died on a cross. And I know you may know that, but let me explain to you why that's so important. Because every one of us have sinned, and if someone kidnapped and raped your daughter and even though they felt sorry about it you would want them to pay for, their, for what they did their crime when you and I sin because sin is natural for us someone needs to pay for our crime and so Jesus said I'll pay for it so that they can go free and so what Christianity is and what being right with the Father is is when you and I come and we say Jesus thank you for paying for my sin I accept what you did for me and I declare and make you the Lord of my life I will follow you And I will serve you because of what you paid for from me. And today, if you're away from God, maybe you used to be a Christian, but you've walked away. Maybe you've never been a Christian. But you feel and sense the living God tugging at your heart. I'd like to connect you into a relationship with the living God. The Bible says, confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that he is the Christ, the son of the living God, and that he will forgive you and cleanse you from all unrighteousness today I would like to give you that opportunity I'd like to pray with you, I won't call you forward I won't point you out, I won't spotlight you, I won't make everybody jump up and down because you're making a decision in fact I want this to be a deep private decision I know we're in public, but every head is bowed and every eye is closed so you can really respond and today you realize I'm I'm away from God, or I've never really been a Christian but I I want God in my life I I want Jesus to be my Lord and Savior if that's how you feel right now and you want me to pray with you, no one's looking around I want you to just admit that to yourself and to heaven by lifting your hand, saying, That's me, Pastor. Pray for me. I'm ready to serve the Lord. I'm ready to change. Thank you, sweet love. Thank you. Thank you, ma'am, for your honesty. Anybody else? Give you just a couple of seconds. Pastor, pray for me. It's time for a change. I'm ready. I'm ready to have God in my life. Thank you, sir. Thank you, ma'am. I see it. Anybody else? Two more seconds. I don't want to belabor, but I also don't want to miss you. I know you're kind of doing business trying to figure it out, so I don't want to give you. I'll move past you too quick. Okay. Thank you, sweet love. Amen. You can put your hands down. Now, I'm going to lead you in a prayer, a prayer of repentance. I don't think there's anything magical about the words. I think what's supernatural is that you want God in your life. I think the prayer is just kind of like the period at the end of the sentence. God's been doing this thing in your life these last few weeks and months, He's been drawing you in, connecting you with friends that go to church here and things like that. and Maybe you've been coming for a few weeks or months. That's God been tugging at your heart. So let's seal it today. Let's seal that relationship with a prayer of repentance. In fact, can I get everyone in the audience to pray out loud with those who lifted their hands alongside of them? Let's say it like this. Say, Jesus, today I admit I'm a sinner. And I admit I've sinned against you, Jesus. And today I ask you, please forgive me. I accept what you did on the cross for me. And I ask you now to wash me clean make me new and I declare Jesus is my Lord and that I will serve you all the days of my life in Jesus name if you'll keep your head bowed for just a moment I want to pray over those who lifted their hand Father I pray right now in Jesus name for those who just came into a relationship with you you've forgiven them you've accepted them Lord I pray that they would feel peace Lord there's going to be those thoughts oh you didn't mean it oh you're still sinning you're still gonna go back and drink that, that alcohol, you're gonna still smoke that weed, you're still gonna, you're still gonna lose your temper and cuss and stuff like that. Lord, that's that may be true. But the difference is now they're forgiven. They belong to you. And the difference is, Lord God, that every day as they come closer into relationship with you, they'll they'll overcome. And those old nasty sin things, they just won't matter as much. They won't have as much power. The appetite for that perversion and wickedness, it just won't taste as good anymore because you are in their life. And Lord, I thank you, Lord God, that they'll feel the joy right now of being saved, the joy that that they're not destined to hell, and that, Lord God, that no one, nothing can separate them from your love. And I bless them, and I thank you for their commitment to you and the transformed life that they just experienced. In Jesus' name.